Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington, and joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Honestly, I'm sitting here, and I cannot believe we are already done with October oral arguments. I know. I guess all that's left to do for the justices is basically buy their candy and set out their pumpkins, because Halloween's right around the corner. So um, I, I don't know. Is that still happening this year with the pandemic and everything? I think there's some social distancing, uh, Halloweening happening. Maybe they'll do a virtual like jack-o'-lantern contest between the justices. I think that would be really fun. I like that idea. So this week, we're going to have a special guest on to talk through the big news of the week, the confirmation proceedings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett and the Senate Judiciary Committee. But before we get to that, we're going to go over what happened actually in the Supreme Court this week, because it was not an insignificant amount of news that came out of the court this week, No. They've been pretty busy, oral arguments aside. Um, you know, Tuesday, there was an order from the justices in a census case that really, I think, grabbed some headlines. Uh, the justice said the Trump administration could stop census collection efforts before an October 31st deadline. And this basically blocked a, a lower court preliminary injunction that had stopped the administration from stopping the census counting. Um, so it, it's pretty significant since you know, they're getting towards the end and, and, and weeks really matter um, from what, you know, some of the, the parties in this suit were saying. The suit was brought by Native American tribes, civil rights groups and others who had argued that terminating the counting, which had already been impacted by the pandemic, could really disproportionately affect the groups by not fully counting them. Um, so this order lets the Ninth Circuit case play out, but essentially lets the, the census count to also just drop uh which the trump administration is planning uh in this coming week i guess we don't really know how all the justices split on this um the only recorded dissent was from justice sonia sotomayor who wrote fairly lengthy to say that you know the census count should continue um but i wonder if you know this tells us anything about some of the other census litigation that's pending yeah, it's it's part of a larger web uh, of census litigation that just seems to be expanding. Um, there is, as noted in the order, the potential that this Ninth Circuit case involving the blocking of the, the census collection could end up in a petition before the court, before the Supreme Court. Um, but there's also um, another... Uh, petition currently from the Trump administration that's asking the justices uh, for permission to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the census count for political redistricting. So honestly, it's hard to tell whether, you know, this will be kind of a just one and done with with the block, with the preliminary injunction, or if it might be a a signal that they could be picking up some of these uh, other cases. So that wasn't the only news of the Supreme Court this week. Uh, On Monday, the court took up three new cases, um, related cases, on whether patent judges at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office are illegally appointed because they don't have enough oversight and supervision. So this case basically involves the appointments clause of the Constitution. So the basic question is whether judges on the Patent Trial and Appeals Board, it's like an internal review body for patents at the USPTO, It's whether those judges should be considered principal officers or inferior officers under the Constitution. So the Federal Circuit below held that they are principal officers because they don't have any oversight 
and because of the weight of their decisions on patents. And so if they're principal officers, the Federal Circuit said, then they must be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And since these judges are not at the USPTO, then there's some constitutional problems here. Um, but the case could have some pretty big spillover effects as these types of officers are kind of found throughout the federal government. So we've written about some of the broader implications that a ruling in this case could have throughout the executive branch. Now, getting to another item on Monday, we talked last week about Justice Thomas attacking Obergefell in a statement. Well, Justice Thomas is back this week uh, with another bold statement in the Supreme Court's weekly orders list. Justice Thomas making a bold statement in an order, you don't say. It's shocking, I know. So, <laughs> so this time, he went after the sweeping immunity that internet companies enjoy under a law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which was basically meant to insulate you know, publishers on the internet from, from liability. Um, and, and just as Thomas says that courts have relied on policy and purpose arguments to grant sweeping protection to internet platforms. And he says, many of these companies weren't even around when this law was passed. And the, the law certainly was not meant to shield companies from liability for, say, you know, aiding terrorist organizations and, and allowing their posts to go unstricken. And, you know, he, he mentions child pornography and other, you know, societal ills and things like that. And so he basically he's encouraging, you know, some kind of challenge, even though he agreed that this case that, you know, he, he made this statement and was not the right one to do it. He said that, you know, he wanted to see more uh, challenges to the scope of immunity for some of these companies. But unlike his Obergefell statement last week, no other members of the court joined uh, his statement this time. So we'll see where this goes. So, of course, the spotlight uh, really was not on the current bench of justices so much as uh, the potential nominee to fill the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg seats. Um, we've been going through the nomination hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, to help us break down those hearings, we have Law360's congressional reporter, Andrew Craigie, who has been intensely following all the hearings joining us. Andrew, thanks so much for, for coming on. Good to be with y'all. It's uh, It's been a week. <laughs> so we've now had three full days of hearings for Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. The fourth is going on as we speak. Uh, apologies for tearing you away. Um, can you walk us through what the process has been like so far? Sure. There have been some long days for sure. Uh, the judge was in front of senators for uh, almost 20 hours between Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And she was answering questions from the 22 senators, and it alternates between Republican and Democrat. So she's kind of bouncing around from someone who is very enthusiastic about her to someone who might be very opposed. Um, Democrats were complaining that she dodged questions even more than most judicial nominees. Like every every judge is, says, oh, I can't address this. It might come up. But uh, Democrats were complaining that she did that even more, like when they asked her if racial discrimination is illegal in voting laws. So I was actually going to ask, what have the Democrats really been focusing on? Because going into the hearings, you know, it seemed like Republicans already, you know, kind of had the numbers to to confirm Judge Barrett. You know, this is kind of just going through the motions. But but what have they really been focusing on with their questions to Judge Barrett? Yeah. Early on, they tried to make this a referendum on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, all of Monday, they Democrats brought in posters and showed off um, constituents who they said would be hurt if the Affordable Care Act were struck down in a Supreme Court case that's set for argument next month. Um, and so Republicans and, and to some extent Barrett herself kind of tried to assuage their concerns and were hinting that the whole law is not going to be struck down. Um, but Democrats had a whole array of other concerns. They tried to bring up 
things related to privacy that are not just about abortion, but also about contraception. And um, that privacy also plays into um, gay rights cases, both in gay relationships and um, gay marriage. So they, they tried to make those things issues as well. Andrew, you just referred to the issue of the Affordable Care Act, and there's obviously the pending Supreme Court case that's going to be heard just a week after the election. And if you know Republicans have their way, Judge Barrett will already be on the court by then. So why is it that they think um, that, that Judge Barrett would pose this kind of mortal threat to President Obama's signature health care law? Well, Democrats start with President Trump making a promise that he would only pick justices who would, quote, do the right thing and rule against Obamacare. Um, and then they point to comments that Judge Barrett has made when she was a professor. There's a law review article where she criticized the chief justice's ruling that kept the tax law alive by finding the individual mandate a tax. Um, and then in a radio interview about a later ACA decision, she said the dissent had the better argument. So it certainly seems like she was skeptical of some past decisions to uphold the ACA. And Democrats were trying to use that and say, gosh, it looks like you're going to strike down the ACA in this particular case. Yeah, it makes me think of one particular moment uh, during, I believe it was on Tuesday, when Senator Chris Coons of Delaware basically picks up on this law review article that you mentioned. You wrote in that article, and I quote, in NFIB versus Sebelius, the case that upheld the ACA against a constitutional challenge, Chief Justice Roberts pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. I think those are fighting words as an originalist and a textualist. And Barrett has kind of this interesting response, and it's kind of similar to a response that she had um, on other topics, that she has no personal hostility towards the Affordable Care Act. It, it, was that kind of a, the theme of you know, her responses to on, on a lot of these divisive issues, whether it be abortion or the Affordable Care Act or guns, the, the idea that she would just bring an open mind to the questions? She definitely emphasized that she would bring an open mind, and she said that either she has no hostility towards the ACA or on some of those other issues she talked about um, rulings she's made that maybe even went against her personal views, because we know her personal views. Um, Republicans are proud to say that this is a pro-life judge, but they also say that she can set aside those personal views um, when she's ruling. And so they point on abortion, they point to an issue about um, buffer zones where protesters can't be within a certain number of feet of clinics that offer abortions. Uh, and she actually voted to uphold that law. Um, and so people are pointing to this and saying, like, look, she, she doesn't have any hostility towards the ACA. She's not enacting any personal agenda. Um, she's just going to rule on, on, the, on the law based on the facts that are presented to her. I feel like a lot of the moments that have been really um, coming to the fore in the last two days have involved the conversations about overturning precedent. Um, you know, what there have been some interesting moments, including one about LGBT rights. Can you talk about those? Definitely. Um, so precedent was a big focus yesterday and it got, you know, lawyers are going to love it because they, they actually got into the meat of the law and talking about um, the principle of stare decisis, that, that precedent should stand because people depend on it. They talked about reliance interests um, and Republicans had Barrett walk through all the things she would consider before voting to overturn a precedent, even if she thought the original case was decided badly. Uh, and Democrats were saying that, you know, we still think you're going to vote against the things that we care about. But uh, Republicans and sort of implicitly Judge Bear herself were saying that she's not going to bring a revolution. Right. And I think driving most of that concern is that Judge Barrett has aligned herself 
philosophically so close to her former boss, Justice Antonin Scalia, for whom she clerked, obviously. And you had at one point uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking Democrat on the committee. She says... You identify yourself with a justice uh, that you, like him, would be a consistent vote to roll back hard-fought freedoms and protections for the LGBT community. And what I was hoping you would say is that this would be a point of difference where those freedoms would be respected. And you haven't said that. Senator, I have no agenda, and I do want to be clear that I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not ever discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. You know, the, the, her terminology and her wording there was a little bit of an issue, um, as some groups took took issue with the, the idea that uh, sexual orientation is indeed a choice. But um, Judge Barrett later said that she had no intention of, you know, being disrespectful to the LGBT community. But I guess it's it, it's the idea that she's aligned herself with you know, one of the most conservative justices that the Supreme Court's ever had in, in Justice Antonin Scalia. Right. Uh, she she tried to take a step back and say, I will be Justice Barris, not Justice Scalia. I might share his philosophy. Uh, I might have clerked for him. I might admire him. But that does not mean I would rule the same way in any particular case. And Democrats then tried to press her on particular issues. And she said, I'm not going to talk about that because it could come before the court. Um, and so they would bring up things like um, the ruling to legalize gay marriage nationwide that Scalia dissented from. And uh, she, Judge Barrett didn't give senators any reason to believe that she would vote differently from Scalia, but she also said that they shouldn't believe that she would vote the same way. Right. I think that's so noteworthy, too, in that just a week ago, you obviously had um, Justices Thomas and Alito kind of calling um, for, you know, maybe some fresh challenges to the scope of the uh, same-sex marriage ruling in 2015. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of ask about Judge Barrett and, and her kind of demeanor throughout the whole proceeding. She obviously had that one kind of famous moment where she held up her notepad to kind of indicate that she was just kind of free-flowing and going off the stuff in her head in response to a lot of these in-depth legal questions uh, from members of the committee. But how has she kind of described the process writ large, you know, since being nominated by President Trump to fill Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, seat on the Supreme Court? She definitely had some laments about the process. She, she said it can be excruciating. You know, people are going to say horrible things, you know, that you your entire life will be combed over, that you'll be mocked, you know, that your children will be attacked. Um, and so one might wonder why any sane person would undertake that risk and that task unless it was for the sake of something good. And as I said yesterday to Senator Graham, I do think the rule of law and uh, its importance in the United States, and I do think the role of the Supreme Court is important. It's a great good. Um, she said it's been hard for her family. Um, she pointed uh, to her kids, especially. Some of the, her her kids are young, but they sat through like fifteen hours of of the questioning, which was super impressive. Um, but she talked about how their children was the one reason that she and her husband were a little wary of accepting the nomination because they knew that things would get combed over and that there'd be public attention on their kids, which is always tough. Uh, in particular, her two children that they adopted from Haiti, um, a Republican senator, John Kennedy from Louisiana, brought, a, brought up a comment from a uh, professor who sort of implied that it was colonialistic to adopt children from Haiti. He said he wasn't necessarily calling Judge Barrett's decision that, but th that it, there was a history there. 
And this was the one moment where Judge Barrett sort of let down this very cool customer guard and showed that clearly some things had, had wounded her and, and hit her family personally. That almost reminds me of another kind of raw, almost surprising moment on Tuesday when she was asked about the death of George Floyd. Right. Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, asked her a really simple, straightforward question. He said, have you seen the video of George Floyd? And that was the first thing that brought out um, something personal from from the judge. And she said, yes. She said she remembered um, her daughter, who um, was adopted from Haiti and is black, coming to her and sharing that video this summer. And she said that they wept together um, in, in her room. And she said it really was personal for her family. Um, and then Senator Durbin tried to say, okay, well, let's talk about issues of um, racism systemically in America and implicit racism in the justice system. And those she again sort of demurred and said, those are issues that could come before me. I'm not going to address them. Um, to the frustration of Democrats and to the you know Republicans said that was normal. Which is, honestly, I mean, we've seen it, I think, from from justice uh, nominees uh, fairly recently, uh, you know, from, I think, Justice Sotomayor on. I remember those moments popping up, just can't answer the question, can't answer because it might come up before the court. Um, Coming into the the confirmation hearings, politically, it just seems so already set up, teed up. Is there any sign that there's been any shift in support or anti-support um, from the Senate at, at the end of her testimony on Wednesday? No, I think it's sort of confirmed what everyone already thought, that Republicans are very enthusiastic about a nominee who has some personal conservative views, but in terms of judicial philosophy is uh, originalist and, and very committed textualist. And uh, Democrats are still concerned about someone who they feel didn't answer their questions about issues they care about, from the Affordable Care Act to same-sex marriage to abortion. So we're still on track for a confirmation vote later this month, maybe October 26th or so. Uh, And we're looking at one, maybe two Republicans who have said they will vote no, and then one Democrat who's in question, um, Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. Right. And I just wanted to kind of follow up on that because it it does seem like this go round, there's a little bit less caution maybe on the part of Republicans around some of these very divisive issues. Like, let's just take abortion, for example. Uh, Lindsey Graham kind of said he, you know, he's very proud of this nominee. She's unashamedly, I think is the word he used, pro-life. And I think doesn't that reflect the dynamics this go around in terms of there not being not only not a filibuster, but the Republicans have expanded their majority in the Senate and... It, it looks like she's on track. This hearing did seem unusual for the way we came in and most senators had already said how they would vote. I feel like in the past there's usually been, you know, sort of some uncertainty or the question of um, how many of the minority party would support this nominee. Um, but now, like you talked about, with the filibuster gone, and you only need 50 votes. It's sort of like, well, they have the 50. They're going to do it. This is just a chance for the public to see her. All right. Well, thanks so much, Andrew, for coming on the show and walking through, you know, the the many hours of testimony that you've sat through so far. And I'm sure you're looking forward to hopping back on the live stream and checking out what they're go- what's going on in the hearing room right now. Yeah, back to see what I missed. Thanks so much. <laughs> so I think that just about does it for us this week, right, Jimmy? That's right. Yeah, there was a lot to go through, but we got through it. So I want to thank the listeners for sticking with us. 
We'd also like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Andrew Craigie, Danny Cass, and Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please subscribe to us.